0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like what you hear, please press subscribe. And also, if you could leave a review and rate this podcast, that would be amazing. Um, Thank you to the many of you who have already done that. It means so much to me, and I read every comment. So please review, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much to Riley Versa for sponsoring today's podcast. Riley Versa is a woman-owned line of bags created with the idea that one bag can really have it all. Riley Versa's interchangeable covers, pouches, and straps allow you to be boldly versatile, get it, Versa, Riley, Versa, versatile with your fashion choices at all times. With one seamless switch, you can transform your bag into a completely new one in seconds. Riley Versa makes an amazing baby bag, too, with two colored removable pouches, a detachable bag that allows it to be crossbody or backpack, and spill-proof interior lining. Mental note, this is a great baby gift. They also offer DIY customization and hand-painted customization. In fact, a friend of mine gave me one of these bags, and it is really awesome, and I love it, and my kids are fighting for all the little pieces that go inside. Anyway, Riley Versa is offering a special gift with purchase at checkout with code Zibby. So go check out um, Riley, R I L E Y V E R S A dot com, Riley Versa. Check out with code Zibby for your special gift. I truly enjoyed interviewing Carrie Kletter about her book, East Coast Girls. Carrie holds a degree in literature and is the critically acclaimed author of the young adult novel, The First Time She Drowned. She also has an extensive background in theater, having appeared in film, television, and on stage. She lives in Los Angeles and adores her friends, her partner David, dogs, neuroscience, funny people, Montauk, surfing, and french fries. East Coast Girls is her first adult novel. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me, be So East Coast Girls, so I'm talking to you. You're in Santa Monica, California, and your book takes place in Montauk, which is way closer to me here than you all the way over there. So how did you end up writing a story about, that takes place a lot in Montauk, or at least several trips there? And tell me about, like, writing the book in general and what it's about.
1: Okay. So, well, first, I'm from New Jersey, so I did move to the West Coast, but I'm from New Jersey, and my dad has a house in East Hampton, so I spent my summers there since I was about 16, and it's a very meaningful place to me. So that's how it ended up being taking place in Montauk. And then, you want the book pitch? Is that let's take? I'll take
0: the book pitch. I mean, (laughs) I, I already, I mean, I have the book. I read the book. You know, you tell. But for everyone else who has not had the luxury of flipping through it, okay.
1: Okay, so East Coast Girls is about four girls who grew up together and they have this almost familial bond because they came from families that weren't particularly loving or functioning very well. And so they kind of found each other and became a pack and kind of raised each other. And then they get to high school and this terrible thing happens to them one night just a totally tragic thing. And they never talk about it. So for the next 12 years, they never talk about what happened. And they are all sort of, their lives are all derailed in different ways because of this thing that happened to them. And their bond is a little bit fractured because of it. And so they decide to go back to the last place that they were truly happy, which is these summers they spent together in Montauk when they were girls and see if they can sort of get back to their own innocence and their connection to each other but of course you know things don't always go as planned and therein lies the story the secrets start coming out
0: and yeah things happen so. So I know why you said it now where you said it how did you come up with the idea for the plot? For the plot oh that's interesting well
1: I wanted there to be a shared trauma. And the reason I wanted, I'm always wanting to write about trauma. My first book was about trauma on some level, even if it's a beach book, I I want to explore that idea. And so the reason I had them have the shared trauma is because I wanted to explore the different ways that people respond to trauma and how their different responses, the way they cope with that, the defense mechanisms they develop start to interfere in their relationships with other people. Because I think that happens to us all the time, where our coping mechanisms, our defenses, cause friction in our relationships. And it's because we can't see the pain that's driving the behavior. And so I kind of wanted to have these girls who are all a bit of a mess because of what happened. And they have conflict with each other because of it. And they have to come to a place where they can really see each other again, see each other's hearts and see what's driving behaviors. And so that was sort of why I came up with that shared trauma. And then the reason that I picked that particular trauma is because something similar happened to some people that I knew in college. And so I kind of extrapolated from that, obviously changing a lot of things, but
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to know like your attraction to writing about trauma. Usually I feel like if an author is doing that, it comes from some place of trying to understand something that's happened to them or whatever. So can you tell me any more about what happened in college or?
1: Uh, I mean, that didn't happen to me. So it wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't me that that happened to. My attraction to, to writing about trauma is from my own childhood, basically, just had a very traumatic childhood. And So I've spent, you know, a lot of time in therapy and I kind of like gave the girls some issues like Hannah, who I consider the main character. I sort of gave her some of the issues that I've struggled with. You know, she's sort of me in some ways without therapy. So I just think that I'm always trying to figure things out because of what happened to me in terms of how do you excavate your true self and dismantle, like, dysfunctional coping mechanisms, and I think it's a lifelong process. So as I'm trying to work through things, I'm hoping that the readers will resonate with some of the issues that I'm trying to work through, and that we can sort of find the way out together.
0: And your last book, too, The First Time She Drowned, also Confronted trauma, as you mentioned. And it was about a daughter who spent time in a mental institution and then how she dealt with her mother after she came out. Tell me about writing that one. I'm just so curious about your whole, if you will, <laughs> your whole, like, uh, what inspires you to write about this? If that, if this mother daughter thing is something that you've been grappling with yourself.
1: Oh, I mean, absolutely. I've grappled with, you know, a mother daughter thing. And that book was really about what they call in psychology the designated patient and what that is is that when there's a really dysfunctional family a lot of times there's one kid who the family projects all the dysfunction onto and then that kid acts out and then the family points to that kid and says you are the problem. And so that's basically what happens in the first time she drowned, which is this incredibly dysfunctional, abusive family and the most sensitive child, which is usually the designated patient, begins to act out because of the dysfunction and they hospitalize her. And so I, that is so interesting to me, that whole dynamic of the designated patient, because I think we see it in society all the time. I think we, you know, that that we're always sort of creating somebody who we can identify as the problem when usually it's a much bigger
0: thing. And have you found writing these books to be therapeutic for you as well as your regular therapy?
1: (laughs) (laughs) How much therapy can one person have? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think that's the intention. My intention is always to hopefully give words to experience so that other people can feel seen and validated and maybe find some sort of healing or understanding in the books. But I think as I do that, that probably, you know, they say that one of the ways that people become mentally healthy is through creating narrative of their own life. So I think, you know, you're doing that a little bit when you're writing books. And yeah, I would say that that's probably been therapeutic, though it was never my intention for it to be.
0: And you're a really lovely writer. I mean, even just some of the analogies in the first few pages of the book, like how the girls are all in a little picture booth together and they're at the fair and just the way you write about it, like even your opening sentence, which I wish I, I wish I had like in front of me, but just the way you draw the reader in and describe a summer day and it's all of it. It's so, it involves all the senses, the way that you write. And so you really feel immersed in that scene. How did you learn to write? Like, when did you start writing? Tell me about your process, all of that.
1: I think I was always writing to a certain extent and that (laughs) I really became a writer out of, when I was in high school, I was this very rebellious kid because of what I had been through. And I had this English teacher who I tortured. I tried to get out of her class and went to the principal and said, you know, get me out of this woman's class. And she came wheeling up behind me and said, don't you dare let this student out of my class. Mm-hmm. And so we spent the next three months torturing each other. And then I, she had us write an essay. And I wrote an essay about a, an ogre of an English teacher and how a student, I believe chops her into pieces, something that you'd probably get arrested for now, you know, it was meant to be funny, but it, you know, it was definitely meant to be a dig at her. And she loved it. And she read it out loud to the class. And then she called me in afterwards and she said, you know, I think you're a writer. And nobody had ever really said, no adult had ever really said anything positive about me. So I kind of clung to that. But it took me a really long time to have the resiliency to actually write a novel because you have to, have a real growth mentality about it, you know? And I was sort of in that state of, well, if somebody criticizes it, then it's not good. And so I had to grow up enough to get to actually criticism is awesome and exciting because then you can get better. So that's sort of how that happened. And then what was the question? What's my process with it? Yeah, or like, how, yeah. Yeah. How
0: did you? How did you sort of hone your craft?
1: Yeah. So I read a lot. I read a lot and I was attracted to a certain kind of lyrical story, you know, lyrical language. And so I just sort of kept looking at that and, and I think I had an instinct for it and just would underline sentences in books over and over and over again and try to figure out how the writer came to that and really just was self-taught mostly. You know, I was an English major in college, but mostly it was just reading a lot so, and then when I wrote my first book, <laughs> I wrote my first book and it took me three years to write it and I sent it to an agent and she said, I, I love the writing, but there's no plot. And I was like, oh my God, a plot. Like I had no idea, <laughs> just put a plot in a book. So, you know, then I had to go back and learn how to, you know, do a plot. So that, that's, that book actually ended up taking about 14 years to write. It was, you know, I was, had three jobs and a neighbor who was blasting music 24 hours a day, but yeah it took about fourteen years. and how long did how long did this one take? This one took, I think about three, so much I'm getting faster, but it's still you know, I really love to hone sentences, and I want things, especially if you're writing about trauma, I have this desire to still make things pretty and hopeful. so i it's always it's almost like a counter to the darkness, I think, to have sentences that are vivid and pretty. So that takes a while because I'm just constantly
0: honing that. And where do you like to write? In my bed.
1: (laughs) In my bed. I mean, I pretty much don't leave my bed. So (laughs) everything gets done there. My friend and I, who's also a writer, we joke, we're like those old people in Willy Wonka who never get out of
0: bed. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much (laughs) me. That is my ideal day. If I could say that's like (laughs) a dream day.
1: Yeah. I don't have children. So I have the, the privilege of doing
0: that. Yeah. I my I am divorced and remarried. So on days when I don't have the kids, like I don't have them today, for instance. Well, now I got up early, but like yesterday I did, you know, I could do all my work in bed for like, you know, until 10 in the morning. And that feels like a huge luxury. Because usually, yeah. usually by 10, I've had like an entire day, right? I'm like ready for dinner, but, but yeah. And I don't geez, have the like, kids. When
1: yeah, I see moms, I'm just like, oh my God, I don't know how. <laughs>
0: So I don't want to like pry into your personal life, but I'm so interested and you can feel free to just not want to talk about it. But you keep referencing the trauma in your early childhood. And I just am wondering, like, if you feel comfortable talking about what happened, I would love to listen. But if not, do not feel bad saying no.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's sort of specifics that I can't really say. You know, I, I never want to hurt anybody, even people who have been abusive, because I feel that. They're abusive because they've been abused, and, you know, things happen to our brains sometimes that create limited capacity for things like empathy. And, but there was just, there was a lot of child.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: But that said, when I think about my childhood, what I think about, and I think this is why East Coast Girls is what it is, what I think about are the witness bearers. And I think about the friends who saved me through those times. I don't really think about, you know, the difficult things that happened. There was a, you know, probably my most important memory from being a kid was being eight years old. And it's so vivid to me. And I had a friend come over and she wanted cookies. And so I called down to one of my parents who was in the basement doing laundry. And I said, you know, can we have some cookies? And this parent did not like the fact that I called down to the basement instead of walking down to the basement. And so responded with a string of expletives and insults and my little friend, eight years old, turned to me with the most intense expression on her face. And she said, Carrie, that's child abuse. And it was the most important thing that ever happened to me because the expletives was nothing compared to what was going on. But to have somebody say, this isn't you, this isn't right, you know, this is something that is happening to you, gave me a sense of fight for the rest of my life, you know? So when I think about my childhood, what I think about is my friends. And they rallied behind me. Everybody knew what was happening and they came to my aid. They took me into their homes. It was just incredible. And to this day, you know, they're my family. They are the people that mean the most to me. And, you know, it's like when I write a book, my entire town shows up. It's just unbelievable and so moving. And so, you know, that's what I think about. I don't want to think about, you know, the bad stuff because everybody goes through it. But the people who save us, that's the stuff that to me is really meaningful.
0: Oh my gosh. How powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so sorry that all of that happened. And I'm so glad you had people. I'm so happy for that moment with that girl. Is she still a friend of yours? She is.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I was lucky that, you know, I think most kids don't ever get that. Somebody who bears witness and says this isn't OK. And, you know, that's that's the most important thing is to 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 let people know that what they're experiencing isn't right. You know, that is why we have to speak up about things.
0: Wow, oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Well, on to lighter topics. Sure. Then you became an actress for a while yes. and I looked you yes. up and you were in Lethal Weapon 4. Is that right? Is that the same yes. you? Oh, my
1: gosh. I was in Lethal Weapon 4 and I was in Swordfish with John Travolta and Hugh Jackman and Halle Berry. And I did stunts on that as well. And I did a couple of soap operas and stuff like that.
0: What kind of stunts? Oh, OK. So in
1: Swordfish, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but there's these hostages who they're in bomb vests and they're taken on a bus and the bus gets flown through the air by a helicopter. So the way we had to do that is we had to go into an airport hangar and they took two 60 foot cranes and lifted the bus up on the two cranes and then they let one side go so that we were swinging, <laughs> hanging in the bus and we were strapped in. And it was terrifying because what happened was a stunt guy right in front of me, his strap broke. <gasps> no. And yes. And so he went tumbling all the way to the back of the bus and there was a 60 foot drop to the concrete underneath. And the only thing that saved him was that there was a person sitting there. And so they hit each other. They both had to go to the hospital. They were okay, but like broken bones. And the movie made us do it another take after that. So that was my stunt career. I was I was one and done. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. But it was really fun. That that set was really fun. I, you know, we were on the bus shooting so many hours a day, and it was John Travolta and Hugh Jackman. And so one day I got John Travolta to do the, you know, you're the one that I want. And then all the hostages would lean out, you know, like in our bomb vests, and we'd lean into the aisle and go, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> So, yeah, we had a good time. But after that movie, I was like, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Hollywood is very masochistic and very, you know, you're just kind of always trying to prove your worth. And if you're a woman, you have to worry about aging and all these things. And I thought and people are sort of climbing each other and it just was not an environment I wanted to be in. And so I thought I'm going to write a book. And I sat down one day and I wrote the first sentence of my first book, which is my mother wore the sun like a hat. And I I had no idea why, but I was like, I guess this is the first sentence. And it, 14 years later, it stayed the first sentence and everything else changed. But yeah, it was after that movie that I was like, I think, uh, I think I need to pivot here.
0: Yeah, I think stunt doubles with broken bones might not be a, a lifelong <laughs> career path. <laughs> wow. And how about now? What are you working on now? What are you, what are you in bed writing? <laughs> <laughs> I am working
1: on a book about an actress who is publicly shamed and who retreats into solitude to escape the world. And I'm writing it because I'm really interested in that whole idea of public shaming as a corrective measure. I have very complex opinions about it, and I'm trying to work through them about how I feel about it. But mostly, you know, I think I'm not for it in some of these situations where it's a minor thing that happens and we kind of as a society, pile on and say, oh, you're a bad person. And I think that is, again, because of my childhood, when you grow up in an abusive home, you get very black and white thinking, this person is good, this person is bad. And, you know, that's something that I've had to dismantle my whole life to get to the point where, like, people can do bad things and not be bad people. And so that's something that I I always want flawed characters who, you know, have redemptive qualities. So, That's kind of what I'm working on right now. Who knows? Who knows? It's
0: very timely. I mean, now I feel like, you know, I was just talking to my husband about this, like the Me Too movement was one thing, like started by Harvey Weinstein. And now everybody on Instagram is shaming everybody for being racist and everybody's coming out with this. And what did you say? And I don't know if, I mean, there was some, there was a CEO whose emails to her company from 2017, one or two emails are now all over Instagram. And it's like, I'm not defending that person by any stretch, but it's like, is this going to be the next thing, right? Is this going to be the next way where people are going to fall? Oh, today this person came out because of her email or his email or, you know, it just seems like this is a like, I don't know, like the doors are open and I'm just waiting to see the the, the, the cascading effect of, of what happens here.
1: Yeah, well, I think that, You know, we have to give room for people to grow. It's not that they might not be doing those things. I'm sure they are. You know, I think we all have to explore our own racism growing up, you know, just like I'm still dismantling, you know, sexism in myself. Having been raised in this society, I'm sure that, you know, there are things that I have to investigate and that we all do, but we have to give people room to grow And, you know, I remember this moment when I was 21 and I was a real jerk at that age. I was still a bit messed up. And this was huge to me. And it really taught me something about how people change, which was that I was driving in a parking lot and there was hardly any parking spaces. And I saw someone going for a parking spot and I took it and I pulled in and I took it. And I was very angry at the world at that time. And the woman pulled up. She was an older black woman and she pulled up to this jerk 21 year old who just took her space, you know, just so rude. And I got out of the car and I was ready for her to yell at me. And she said, honey, I'm sure she wanted to yell at me, but she took a breath and she said, honey, your car is sticking out a little bit. And if you pulled it in, you know, I'm just worried that somebody will hit it. And I was so shamed by her kindness you know what I mean? That that I knew she could have attacked me, that she was pointing out that what I had done, but instead of responding with the righteous rage that she could have, she was kind to me. And I changed so dramatically from that moment that it is literally like two different people. It shamed me to my core. It made me realize that I was acting extremely narcissistically in the world and that I did not want to be that person, that I wanted to be like her. And so I think about that when we're shaming people that my, my biggest question is, is it effective? You know, and I'm just not sure that it's effective if there isn't a balance of giving people room to grow. You know, it's not that we can't be shamed. Shame is a useful emotion. It's just I would like to see also how can we get you to a better place? Because most I've done stupid things in my life. I would hope that people would give me a second chance to be better because I always want to be better. And I think that's probably most people. So that's kind of where I stand on that.
0: This is none of my business, but yeah. I feel like you have a best-selling memoir in you that you yeah. need, that you need to write. And I would love to read it. If I were a publisher right now or an agent or somebody representing you, I would say start working on your memoir because you will help so many other people go get through it. So I think you should think about it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Then. In your spare time, you know, not that you need my advice. Anyway, speaking of advice, what advice would you have to aspiring authors? Well, first, I
1: would say develop a growth mentality because criticism is your best friend, but it's really hard. being a writer, being a published writer is really difficult. My first book, not only did it take 14 years to write, but then it took two and a half years to sell. And You know, one of the best things that I learned from that was, you know, standing on the beach in Montauk thinking, what if it never sells? What if I spent 14 years writing a book thinking that this was my destiny and it doesn't sell? And I looked around, I looked at the surfers in the water and my boyfriend on the beach, and I realized that I would be okay. that I had done it. And that I didn't have to prove anything to anybody else, that I didn't have to be special, that I didn't have to, you know, like have a sign attached to me that said like published author, that I would be OK and that it was worth it just to do. And I, I thought that was a really helpful thing with publishing because you are going to experience so much rejection and you think that once you get published, it ends, but it does not end because I don't know if you've seen Goodreads, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's always somebody who's going to reject you on Goodreads. So I think you have to go in knowing it's really hard and giving yourself room to feel that pain you will develop a thicker skin but also to not expect that you're just going to get it right out of the out of the gate you know that you're going to have to revise and and revise and revise and revise and that is the cool part because it's about mastery you know it's always trying to achieve mastery and you never will but I think that if you can get excited about criticism because In my mind, the the people who succeed are people who can take criticism and who are tenacious. And that's it. You know, there's so many amazing writers out there. It's not it's not like I feel like if I can do it, anybody can do it. But you have to be tenacious and you have to be able to be willing to grow. And yeah, that's
0: it. And read a lot. Please read a lot. (laughs) It's great advice. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on my show. Thanks for letting me completely invade your privacy with all my <laughs> intrusive questions and, uh, <laughs> and all the rest. So thanks for spending your early morning in LA with me. And <laughs> Great. I loved it.
1: And, you know, I know that you're writing a novel, right? Ugh. <laughs> Listen, Zippy, I'm really good at editing. So if you ever want to send me anything, I'm happy to give you notes. But I hope you keep
0: going because I think you have a book in you. Oh, thank you. I think I might give up on that book. I don't know. Oh, another a conversation <laughs> for another time. <laughs> okay, all right. But, I've but thank you for the times. offer. Okay, thank you for that offer. Careful what you say, though. I might take you up on it. No, take you up on it. Okay, all right. Well, Thanks. thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Riley Versa for sponsoring today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.